Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. In this show, recent episodes, and general science concepts and news, We'll be starting in just a moment, and feel free to put your questions right into the chat for our mods to come and screen, and please try to keep them clear, legible, and understandable. As always we welcome Super Chats to help support the show, and you can also find links to our website and other options in the episode description. With all that said, welcome, and let's get started. Good afternoon everyone, welcome to Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur for our monthly livestream Q&A. As usual, we'll be taking questions directly from the audience, and our friend Myasco and my wife Sarah will be relaying those to us today. Hello, Sarah. Hi, how are you today? Doing pretty good. I good. actually got distracted. We were about 30 seconds late coming on the stream because I um, mentioned our picnic, however, we just gotten one of the folks in the chat had uh, come from a picnic and they uh, had a much more interesting fare available to them. Always they forgot to bring anything other than dessert. So we bought a dessert. Uh, every else brought a dessert. I think there was like one pan of rigatoni, but otherwise it was nothing but dessert. If you wanted a dessert first, yeah. it yeah. was a divert, Perfect, yeah. dessert first heaven. Yeah, the kids were happy. They loved that. <laughs> I was happy until uh, the sugar kicked in and I wanted to go, oh. I, I was glad I started coffee, I think. But then, um, yeah, it was just the kids loved the slip and slide. Oh, was yeah. that, so. But they also love the candy. <laughs> Anyway, good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly livestream Q&A, where we'll be taking your questions directly from the audience with occasional digressions. So and if we seem ahead. a little zoned out today, it might because we just had dessert. Yeah, I had a, I lot I brought of a dessert. plate of, of brownies for me at the table and then half them got up and I ate them all myself because you can't let them go to waste at that point. <laughs> so I am, I am well sugared going to this. But the stream. best dessert was the one where they had some fresh apples, they cut it up and they had that peanut butter. Um, yeah, Peanut butter fluff of some fluff sort. Of I was going to say pudding, but it was some sort of fluff and caramel. I'm not allergic to peanuts. Forbidden fruit is the best fruit. <laughs> it was delicious. Yeah. So we have a question from Albert Jackinson related to picnics. Yeah, he was the picnic person, yes. Yes. Can it be a picnic if everybody just brings dessert, though? A picnic implies lunch. Yeah. I, but well, it had fruit. That, that was what I was Googling that we ended up getting late to the stop the show. I saw, I saw that question. And the answer is, oh, but yes, it, it qualifies as a picnic, period. There's no particular required lunch. You just have to be outside. So <laughs> so the next time, we should just take cake, get a little picnic basket, and go for exactly. a picnic yeah. with cake only. <laughs> Marlon May says, given all that you know about the Fermi Paradox, would you say that projects like SETI are not worth the time or energy? Um, well, first, you know, there, there's two SETIs, right? There's SETI A, which is just the concept itself, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, what the acronyms were. And then there's the SETI Institute, which is the best-known group that does it. Uh, the two are not quite synonymous, and indeed you often have folks who disagree about the, the methodology on that, um, including at the SETI Institute, I should say, because there's a lot of different scientists who are involved in that project who have differing viewpoints on how you should do it. Uh, but I would say that it's never not a good idea to look for alien life or other signals. I just don't really expect us to ever find any signals. So it's you got to listen because you don't know, and we have gotten some good astronomy out of it, you don't know when that might change. You know, If we do it for a few centuries and don't hear anything, great, but you always kind of want to be listening anyway just to be on the safe side. Kind of the same reason I don't really want to have to send too much active messaging out too is 
you never know for sure who might be listening. And while they shouldn't be in any way hostile to us and probably would already know where we were if we did anyway, because Earth's been emitting signals for over a century and been around a lot longer than that with obvious biosignatures, I really am not expecting that to be a path that produces much. So, you know, at the risk of saying some folks, I know it used to be a government program back in the 70s and it got its budget cut uh, by the testimony of folks like Michael Holt and others who are on the rare Earth side of the Fermi camp, which is where I'm at, too. And I happen to have agreed that it wasn't exactly a good use of funds, but I would not have cut their funding all the way. I think I would just kept it trim and lean. Uh, you know, it doesn't hurt us to be spending a few million dollars a year or listening to the skies that way. Uh, but no, I wouldn't be in for like building a multi-billion dollar probe at this point either. Well, it's hard to choose which question is going to go next. I'm going to skip around a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, we have a question from Robert Hawk. Do you think there is any possible way for humans to explain a non-sentient intelligence like the one in the Insight book, what it means to be sentient? <sighs> um, how would you explain to something that isn't sentient that it was sentient? How do you explain to something that's blind uh, that you can see? I don't know that you necessarily could. You can come up with analogies, but I think in a lot of those cases, the, the only way you could ever check that would be to find something that wasn't sentient, describe sentience to it, and see if it could give you an answer that was like a chat GPT rearranging of the words that was a that implied that actually knew what it was talking about. But uh, I don't think you necessarily have to be able to experience a concept to understand the concept or explain it to other people. But by and large, it really helps. So I, I'm going to guess the answer to that would be technically no, but for all practical purposes, yes. <laughs> so. I'd like to thank Crossover Maniac for your super chat. And the question is, have you ever heard about dynamic sailing being used in conjecture with magnetic sails to accelerate a spacecraft to 2% light speed? Um, as with anything with sailing, there's no real reason why you couldn't do it faster than that, too. The one we usually talk about on the show the most, uh, and it's not necessarily the best one, is the laser beaming technique. That's where you just kind of concentrate a beam of sunlight or photons uh, from a direct laser beam onto a sail very far from us. And the idea being there that you can put way more power per you know, unit of sail, but also that as you get further from the sun, you're not really dropping off in strength as quickly. That you can keep a beam on something for you know, a few light days out at least. And at that point in time, you have a very good push. That's, photons are not really your best source of, of uh, you know, gaining inertia when you're at low speed though. And so we tend to look like ionized particles or magnetic, you know, solar wind. You can at least get up to solar wind speed off of that. So, and that can be very fast, we hundreds of kilometers a second. Um, so, yes, right, you could potentially be getting up to 2% of light speed with some of the tricks that combine these things. I've heard so many different versions of how you do that. One would be you, you capture them to get their speed, then you grab those ions and run them through a fusion plant, like a backward Buso ramjet. Instead of it coming in as you go out in space and grab them, you're grabbing them as they come and hit you from behind. So you've got about the same speed anyway. Um, there's a lot of different techniques for doing it, but at the end of the day, you should be able to get up to at least 1% of light speed or better using some of those sailing techniques. And I think you could probably do a lot better if you don't mind dumping energy into it. So. I think Astrovoid brings up an important question related to this, and that is, how would spacefaring citizens standardize time, even with that light lag and relativity? That's one of those trickier ones, because on the one hand, you say, well, well let's just keep using Earth time. And I think... You know, if you're somebody who has to do a lot of phone conferences or video conferences, even today, even with all the little pieces of technology to say, oh, great, I can match your calendars for you, I still have means to get missed because one of us said, oh, 
I yeah, I thought you won Eastern Time. I thought that was four hours ahead of us, and it turns out it's not. Or uh, daylight save. Oh, I forgot about that. My country doesn't do those. And uh, well, why do you guys still do that? Here in Ohio right now, whatever time is noon, the, the actual top of the sun is like one thirty. So one thirty in the afternoon is when noon physically occurs here right now. Um, and there's a part of me that says we should just go ahead as a, as a civilization right now and give up on having uh, you know, individual time zones like that in favor of just having times of day, morning, noon, evening, that are localized, and then using one 24-hour clock that everyone just agrees on. The UTC, I think, is what the usual code is that, the universal time code. And the flip side of that, and you could use that for you know habitats too, say, well, this is our summer, this is our spring, it happens on these dates, but it's not glued to the official Earth calendar of 24-hour days and 365.25 some days, right, per year. And you might see that drift and just like, well, we still keep the old Earth calendar, but we drop that quarter of a day. No more leap years for us or something like that. Um, the flip side of that, though, is that you don't necessarily need to have that because a computer can translate all that stuff so easily. And it would make it a lot of sense if translation technology got to the point that when you're talking to people who are light centuries away from you, it just pretty much automatically changed all the time codes to the binary equivalent while it was busy changing all the language so you could understand each other since... The odds of you understanding somebody who was on a planet 100 light years away from us and had been there for a couple centuries, and vice versa, if you've been letting your languages drift, would be like trying to listen to old English, which is, and I don't mean like Shakespeare old English, like old, old English, which doesn't even sound like, well, yeah, it does not sound the least bit like modern English. So, you know. And I think that's probably the key there is it'd be so easy to do translation of time codes, translations of languages, etc that that might just be glued in automatically and you might even have it to the point where you're talking to somebody live there's lives you clearly could get in some cases and it's just busy changing their face and lips around so that it looks like what they're saying is syncing up with the words they've been retranslating for them so they say something that it deep fakes their appearance that the lips stay synced to whatever they've changed that to to make it easier for you to understand those are the kind of technologies that probably are only like 10 or 20 years out in terms of our ability to do them and so they're probably going to jump in there before we ever really get into space and so there's that question, which way do we go? Do we ultra-standardize and then go out in space and it stays there? Or do we do the exact opposite, give up on trying to standardize languages and time codes, and that follows us in the space too? And I don't know which one it will be, but I bet you if you ask in 20 years, we'll know. Well, some people are asking sooner than that, and Marlon May wants to know if we have considered attending the World Science Fiction Convention a year from now in Glasgow, Scotland. I did not know that was happening. Well, if I did, you're going to be saying these things in questions. You always want to make sure you put the date and time in. That way you can have it plugged for free. So you sort of say, the world Glasgow, you know, sci-fi fair on DataX. Uh, <laughs> that way it gets a free ad. Um, probably not. You'd have to convince my wife that we want to go flying overseas right now. Well, no, uh, no, no. Hmm? That's not true. You have to invite you the wife, which they wife. did yeah. actually include that. My <laughs> wife is the travel coordinator for our household. And uh, so we are definitely overdue for a trip. But uh, that would be the one. It's harder to convince me, actually, to get on a plane. Um, but uh, curiously enough, um, thinking of Scottish sci-fi writers, I finally got to meet Alistair Reynolds not that long back on a little Zoom conference. was making me think of that. Um, he's been my favorite sci-fi writer for a long time. And uh, well, I got sad news about an update on a book he didn't think he was going to do a sequel to after all. He was exactly as interesting in, in person, virtually, so to speak, as you would think. 
and I was right about my guess that he is actually a techno-optimist. He writes very dystopian sci-fi, but he himself is very upbeat about the future of technology. So, nice guy. And if you've never read Alastair Reynolds, I, I will say he is the best Scottish science fiction writer, period. There you go. Since he's on my top five list of sci-fi writers who ever lived, that's probably true. <laughs> well, Nulana wants to know if there are any options inside known physics for sci-fi style holograms and volumetric displays. Um, yes, I would say, hmm. Yes, I would say the biggest thing on that is that you have to decide, are you talking like a, um, a Robert Picardo style, like Voyager solid hologram, which would be a little bit harder, and, uh, or if we're just talking about something that kind of walks around inside your vision. And I would say the big one for just a visual would be that, assume inside the next century, someone's going to successfully put together either a contact lens that comfortably flits on your eyeball, or they're going to find a tiny little chip they can just put right into your uh, visual cortex that lets them send an input to that, and they can do augmented reality that way. And that way, you don't actually have to mess around with the holograms at all. They just You see them. And that would be the same for a phone call or something like that. It's just pumped right into it, on your contact lens or otherwise. Now, the flip side, you could also have a sequence of projectors throughout a room that, so as they are small and able to follow the person who they're you know, wanting to look at, could constantly send an image to them that felt like they were looking at a hologram in that room. So it, it's only when you start having multiple people in the room that that gets complicated from different points of view. Um, and I think this is something we saw in uh, The Naked Sun, the second robot novel by Isaac Asimov, speaking of Asimov, um, where they usually do their phone calls you know, they, they don't like to be in the same physical room as each other, but they do phone calls to each other all the time, including when they're walking, when someone carries a hologram projector with them, one of the robots. And so that, that just it seamlessly would plug the hologram of you into the environment the other person was in and vice versa, so that you felt like they were just in the room talking to you, but they just a little bit fuzzy on purpose, so that you knew they weren't physically in the room with you. And I think that could very easily be how that goes, and there would be that question of, do you prefer a hologram that's so realistic you can't tell us they are, or one where it's really obvious that they're not quite actually in the room, and that's probably going to be one of those, your mileage may vary, you know, choose to upgrade the reality, both a little slide or toggle on the thing. So, yes, there's going to be a lot of stuff with augmented reality, with holograms, in the classic sci-fi sense. Ah, uh, wait and see. It's, it's, there's things that could make it more possible, more easy, but the practicality of it versus augmented reality, I'm not so sure about. Well... Miami's Last Capitalist gave us a super chat, and he has a comment, which I think is really fun. He says, I'm really looking forward to having to have spacesuit will travel. I'm happy there's a place in the future for the lone adventurer in his fancy suit and his personal, uh, faithful personal spaceship. Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, he actually wrote me an email today saying he picked up the old... Uh have Gun Will Travel DVDs that's partially based off of. Um, uh, Ty Moore <laughs> from the uh, Reddit community. Uh, that is a great book. If you haven't actually read it, go ahead and do so. It is inspired by the episode, but it is not actually you know specifically about that sci-fi novel. Have Space Suit Will Travel is one of the funnest sci-fi books uh, I would say that I, I've had occasion to read by Heinlein of all people. Uh, and he certainly gives us a lot of good ones to write. So it was the last one he wrote for Starship Troopers too. Um, so it was definitely getting to build more thoughtful content sometimes. And uh, that was what I was listening to while we were down at the conference in, uh, not Easton, 
the other the other couple months back. Uh, but uh, I hope everyone enjoys that. I'm looking forward to that episode, too. So. <laughs> Shout out to Albert Jackson. Thanks for tuning in again. He said last time he was tuning in from the country of Georgia mm-hmm. during the last live stream. And today he is uh, back in his home and has two questions. Mm-hmm. One, in Starry Messenger, Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about the overview effect. Mm-hmm. How would the majority of people experience this when space exploration expands, change society. Mm-hmm. Was that the full question or was that the second one? That's question one. Okay. Uh, uh, so uh, welcome back from Georgia. It's actually funny. It wasn't uh, We all ask the kids sometimes, you know, to name me some countries, name me some states, name me some, uh, you know, uh, counties, etc. And uh, Geo uh, had said Georgia, obviously they asked for a country. And, uh, of course, it's an interchangeable one. But... Yes, because he, he's got a state too. It's like you are technically correct. He does a lot of those. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, we just glossied over that. Whoops. <laughs> but um, the uh, uh, let's see. The overview effect is the idea that when you get up in space, when you're looking at it from way up there, right? That you and this is a kind of a noted psych, you know, psychological effect that we've kind of documented as opposed to just something purely poetic. That when you're looking at the whole planet that way from so far away, you start kind of getting a broader mindset about humanity. You're more of an existential thought. And you get this effect where you're like up on top of a mountain or things like that, too. I think because you see so much of it, it kind of makes you think to a, to a wider view. I do not think that that would last very long if people were up there. Very, you know, It's like this big, majestic, personal event. I have just climbed up this mountain and looked over around the board. Yes, that's going to make you think differently for a bit. Uh, same as going on a trip and looking at a giant waterfall and being impressed by that wood too. And while it is a little bit different to look at the whole planet like that at once, I do not think that's going to cause an across-the-board deep psychological change to everybody. The second question mm-hmm. was, have you ever traveled outside of the country before? And we yes. can both answer emphatically <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the first time I traveled outside of the country was to go from boot camp to Germany uh, and then from there, I went and saw almost all of Europe, uh, as well as the Middle East. So, I've been to many countries in the Middle East. I wasn't there on travel at the time. I've been to a lot of places in Europe. It was a lot of fun. I've been to some other places too. Uh, I used to ride the railroad around in Europe when I was stationed in um, north of Frankfurt in a place called Gießen. I would just get on the railroads on weekends or four-day passes and just kind of see how far I could go riding to some place, then find my way back. Uh, as opposed to just trying to visit all the tourist trap cities, they the same everywhere. You know, you go find something that's like more like a real authentic place that not everything is is the big metropolis of the airport or the train station. And so I think I did manage to hit virtually every country in in Europe. Though some of them would have been like passing through and grabbing a cup of coffee. You know, so uh, a lot of traveling, a lot of fun. And I've been to many countries, uh, most of the countries in North America. But I look forward to convincing Isaac to get back on the plane. <laughs> And take me to some other continents. Yeah, I suppose I should qualify that when I said that the, the first time I left the country was not actually go to, to Canada. I saw it to Germany, which was to go to Canada, which I've been to many, many times. Niagara Falls is about a two-hour trip to the east of where we're at here. And I would absolutely recommend that. And I always say to go to the Canadian side if you can. Back when I first started going, you could go just on a driver's license. They got much more uh, security-minded about that these days. You need your passport. But uh, it is pretty well on the Canadian side. But... 
there's also a lot of fun. There's a really great bike trail from Niagara Falls East that we took the one time. That was actually a lot of fun trip that we got really wet just riding on the edge of it. That's true. Well, that's because it was raining the day that we and were trying to bike. And it's misty in general. Yeah, it was but nice though. we look forward to doing that in the summer when it was warmer. Yeah. We were wearing snowsuits, oh, yeah. winter coats, <laughs> and raincoats. And still getting wet and cold all the way through. But moving on, we have a super chat here, uh, name not provided. And the question is, the pan-cosmorio theory builds on the e ecological thermodynamics theory to explore the possibility of human life and other organisms living in any part of the universe. I actually don't know what the question is. Did you interpret what the question was? I, I'm trying to see that. See over here. The pan-cosmoia theory builds on ecological thermodynamics theory to explore the possibility of human life and other organisms living in any part of the universe. Okay, I think I might be able to kind of guess where that's going. The thermodynamics one, you guys remember from a headline a few years back, was that somebody had done a paper, a physicist had done a paper showing that um, we might expect abiogenesis to occur by uh, just having the most efficient way to use energy be kind of like into becoming a life form uh, so that you might have developed... Um, developed life inevitably just because it becomes the most thermodynamically optimized um, format it can take. Um, that was a great paper. I don't remember the exact specifics of the math right now, but they were decent. It has had a lot of criticism, though, about being able to hand wavy on some things, so don't just take that part as a given. But then I presume the, the follow-up that is saying, would we just take for a given that any place that life could exist, life will eventually exist? Uh, either naturally or through something like terraforming of those places or, or coming around with us. And I'd say that that has a certain a certain appeal to it as a concept. I wouldn't say it's 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 wrong, but I would guess that it's it really needs a lot more work to be solidified, some actual more examples. And of course, the real key would be if this was the case, we should be able to find that on like virtually everything nearby us too. So, you know, that we should find life everywhere if that was the case. So this person's username is don't forget your sunscreen and I actually thought it was a hack for a moment because we are planning to go swimming after the live stream today and I literally had just gotten a text from another friend saying don't forget the sunscreen I forgot mine and I would like to use yours. Well, you forgot yours in Georgia. <laughs> No, it was Florida. What was it like? Oh, for the $30 bottle of sunscreen yeah. for the hotel. Yeah. So, don't forget your sunscreen says. What do you think about the idea of renaming Earth Terra to fit with the standard way of naming planets after Roman gods? I would be completely okay with that idea because I'm a big 40K fan and they it's called Terra and I just... That, they, they, that planet is described in every piece of fiction on it as, as a, an unimaginable hell planet. Uh, yeah, it still sounds so awesome to me. <laughs> so, I, I would give points to Chris Rate. He's a, he's an author for the Black Library for the description he gives of that planet. It is perhaps the most accurate Eucubinopolis description, albeit a very dystopian one, I have ever seen because he doesn't lowball his numbers the way that uh, Asimov or anyone writing the Star Wars series, for instance, ever does, where like, Many billions of people on this planet-wide city. Skyscrapers are mile tall in which almost a trillion people live. And I was like, well, the math would say that would be much higher. So lots of points to him for actually doing that math correctly. I think that uh, I think that I can't remember what the question was anymore. Yes, I'm all from renaming the planet Terra, but I feel like you would need to make it at least 90% more grimdog for that to be appropriate. Isn't it already Terra Firma? Well, Terraform is just a word for it, yeah. It's, yes, so, yes, so it's just... I used the name for the planet according to the old Greeks or Latins or whatever it is. I can't remember which one. 
<laughs> Enrico Ferme said, thank you for your super chat. He says, thank you for continuing to make some of the best content on the net to keep us all dreaming of the possibilities of the universe. Your videos and streams inspire others to dream and explore. Cheers. Thank you very much, Enrico. And cool username. <laughs> Isaac Weaver says, if hypothetical black dwarf supernova do eventually happen, could their remnants result in a small burst of star formations far later than the death of the last traditional stars? Um, probably not, because a black dwarf would be... So, stepping back a little bit, we have two ways, we primarily two major ways we get supernovae. One is the big star go boom, one that we all know about. The other is the white dwarf go boom, and that's because it hits the certain limit and goes kablam. And we, you know, virtually all of its mass, if not all of it, is jet and send away, leaving no remnant behind. There's some thought they might get zombie stars in some cases, but the idea, that's why he used the standard candles of the galaxy, is they hit a certain exact mass and blow up with a certain amount of exact energy. And that tells you pretty close, you can use it to be like, that's exactly how far away that was. Um, so that's what happens when a white dwarf goes boom. Now, for something you've gotten to the black dwarf stage, it's cooled down an awful lot. And because temperature is actually a factor in, uh, in when they go boom, you could cause a black dwarf even when it's been dead for a long time. This is a white dwarf that didn't have that much mass, kept cooling down, to go boom. You're killing me! <laughs> My wife's dying over there. So. This is apparently what I'm saying is very funny. So. No, no, here, here's the problem. Hold the thought. The problem is we've been working with the children on learning to read, mm -hmm. and they're working on expression. And you keep on saying, go boom, as though it's just a casual thing. And I keep on wanting to jump in and say, go boom. It went boom. And you keep on going, go boom. Go boom. It goes boom. boom. <laughs> it went, go boom. So, Use expression. <laughs> so so a, a blue dwarf that's been cooling down into a, uh, into a slowly turning into a white dwarf. And then, you know, red dwarf goes, blue dwarf goes, white dwarf slowly calming down towards a black dwarf. If you throw mass on that, even when it's completely cooled down, if you throw the right amount of mass on it, it's going to go boom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the problem is, though, that in this kind of setting, you say, what, what, what was making cause to do star formation at this point? And the, the only reason I say maybe kind of yes is because whatever finally put all that mass on it to make it go, boom, uh, had to have been something nearby, so that kind of implies there actually is something lying around that could do that still. Uh, I don't really think the space is being pretty swept out, but uh, yes, that is a possibility. Uh, the opposite case applies with black holes because if they start to die, they get brighter and brighter and brighter, so you can absolutely live around one of those. So lots of options on these things. <laughs> Most of which result in them going, boom. <laughs> Timothy Kuiper says, what effect would a Carrington effect have on today's technology, economy, or society? Um, it's not tiny, but at the same time, I wouldn't expect a CME. I mean, uh, you get a coronal mass ejection, it's going to mess with everything we've got in terms of satellites, in terms of ground-based power, especially the U.S.'s power grid, because we put one up early on, and it was an amazing, great thing at the time, and it's probably now one of the most patchworked and, and cobbled together power grids out there because we've been patchworking the same system for far longer. So it is in some ways very fragile, but it's also more robust, I think, than some people realize. Um, you are not going to end civilization with an extreme coronal mass ejection, uh, unless it's one that's so big it strips all the atmosphere off, because that can happen. You get a big enough coronal mass ejection, 
and I'm doubting there's ever been one in the solar system before that level, it could completely just rip off the ozone layer, rip off the whole atmosphere when it came down to it. But then, as soon as that's over, you know, the ocean starts to separate out again, and you get oxygen, nitrogen released from the ocean and from, you know, life on the planet came, and you get a new atmosphere again. Um, to play, to, you know, more depleted than all, but it comes back. And it would take an extreme event like that to actually strip the atmosphere off. In any situation besides that, so all of our stuff gets kind of scrapped for a bit, but it's not really all of our stuff. Civilization does not fall and collapse. Civilization just has a really rough time that makes COVID look popular on the soft side. But it is one of those things where you're going from either a week or two of, of disruption or maybe a year or two of, of rebuilding. That's kind of your extremes on that one. Other than, again, the atmosphere being ripped off, which is a longer delay. <laughs> So uh, follow up on the earlier question about magnetic sails um, and a super chat as well, $5, thank you. Can you do an episode on the magnetic sails topic? And uh, there is apparently a paper available on the Frontiers in Science Journal. Um, you know, I, I, right now, before I came onto the live stream, I was putting together topics for those image polls, and I'm sure everyone who's watches the live stream probably also watches those image polls. You've probably noticed I've started doing a couple of months. It's basically what we do on Sundays when there's not something else like this going on. And I've been tempted to actually run some additional ones because you may have also noticed that I turned the less popular ones into either a one-minute short video or a Nebula exclusive. So uh, I might end up running more of those. But that's kind of become the way I do a lot of them. I, I just try the topic out and uh, put it up in a poll of some kind. And... Yes, so my wife is making face at me to invite me to stay with the camera, which is actually horrible because I have a seat right behind the camera. Um, so uh, I will see if I can find some kind of image that would match that topic if I can. It's usually my first foreign to make sure there's actually visuals available for the topic at all. We'll put it on one of the image balls. If not, then there won't be enough images to do the topic and we won't do it. So. Unacceptable views. Thank you for your super chat. Could you please list the episodes you've done about machine civilizations? I'm intensely interested in this subject and is very interested if you are going to be making any more in the future as well. Um, machine yeah. civilizations. I think I'm trying to think if we actually have one that's a purely dedicated machine one and, and this has a little bit of context is any episode I do that's pretty far future topic like if we're talking 4,000 plus years from now, I've usually assumed that whoever the main protagonist is, is dubiously human, uh, like extragalactic civilizations. The, the assumption there is that they're all regular people like you and me still around, but almost other people we're talking about really all. Um, everyone in the last planet until we actually all, you kind of try to put in a more human context, the last planet being the episode from earlier this month, that's assumed to be post-biological. And I don't really talk about machine civilizations too much because I don't view that as any different than an alien civilization or a human one in that kind of context. It's just, what are you made together? What are you stitched out from? Uh, we do talk about AI sometimes, uh, like Paperclip Maximizer. That's a machine civilization episode. Um, machine Rebellion is one. AI run government is one. Um, but otherwise, we usually touch on it in another episode. Um, Cyborg Armies is a machine-based one too for that matter yeah so i would say let's let's go for one more question um i would say those would be the main ones i another one we got coming up that's going to be on image for at least is 
aliens versus AI, and that would be a machine civilization discussion too. So, with that, it's time. Yeah, there's to... probably more. You have to look at the chronology. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, well, we, we're going to start a whole new topic when we come back from the break. And so we'd like you to grab your drink and your snack and drop your questions in the chat so that we can work them into the second half. And we'll see you in a few minutes. While we're on a break grabbing a drink and a snack, it's a great time to get more questions into our moderators and a great time to answer another question from last month from Thought Criminal. What is your opinion of Robert Nozick's Experience Machine Thought Experiment? How far away do you think the technology to replicate any experience is, and what are its implications? The experience machine is a thought experiment of a machine able to replicate any possible experience so that it can stimulate a pleasurable response, for instance, and then asks us if people would prefer that over the real deal. I tend to suspect we are a good ways off from something interchangeable with our real experience, but getting closer every day, and that it is doable and maybe inside this next century. For my part, I tend to take the attitude that if you can't tell virtual reality from reality, then the difference might not matter anymore, same as if you're living in a simulated universe and asking if real is the same as natural as opposed to fabricated. More generally, this is a form of neuro-hacking and the concern here is that this might represent the ultimate drug, where you can just push a button and experience any degree of happiness that you want. For the purpose of the thought experiment, we need not consider if this will permanently damage the pleasure centers of your brain, or similar, and this has been contemplated in sci-fi for many angles, at least back to the drug Soma from A Brave New World. We can't really answer questions like that yet, as we need to know more about how the brain works, but it's hard for me to say that hitting a happy button is wrong in and of itself, especially as it hits the question of what the purpose of life is and if happiness is a legitimate primary purpose for existing which has a lot of the same problems personal survival as a primary goal raises. For my part, unsurprisingly, I think the answer is no to either, that those are important goals but not worthy of being the paramount, let alone sole goal of life. But let me suggest a possible Fermi Paradox solution of this, and not the kind that ends in your homeward becoming Slanesh's new capital. Let's imagine sometime in the next couple centuries someone invents this sort of neurohacking, Decent AI, a fusion reactor, VR, brain uploading, and 3D printers or nanobots able to repair aging and wear and tear on machinery and people, none of which is very implausible, or even all of it, and in this next century. This is the technology that easily allows interstellar colonization, but it is also the tech that allows you to instead stick yourself in a small personal spaceship and fly off to a small rocky iceberg in space and suck out all of its fusion fuel and raw materials and head out into intergalactic space on a slow journey. You flip on your super happy button, consuming maybe just 10 watts of power as some brain in a jar, and with a gigaton of fusion fuel and raw materials all to yourself. There's no advantage to reproducing now as you are semi-immortal and would just need to share those resources. And that's enough fuel to run you at that power consumption for a billion, billion years and there's enough raw materials in our solar system to easily give everybody that much without even having to start dissecting planets, plus many empty systems beyond. Now you've got a lifespan of a billion billion years, or more, of eternal pleasure, and you are out in the intergalactic void where you can engage in ultra-efficient computation, have no one within untold light years to threaten you, and no realistic chance of being accidentally damaged by some chunk of rock out there or preyed upon by others, especially with Hubble expansion over the long term. 
if this sort of experience was as good as the real thing, it is plausible civilizations discover them about the same time they would be able to seriously colonize space, and if they went this path they would probably go unnoticed by other civilizations during the small window they were looking before doing it themselves, so maybe all civilizations migrate as individuals and small groups to deep intergalactic space. I think this solution has some issues with non-exclusivity, as I think a lot of people would actively avoid this tech and continue civilization, but it is one possible answer to the big question of where all the aliens are. And speaking of questions, let's get back to our show and more of your questions. Hi, welcome back to part two of our monthly livestream question and answer session, so let's get right back into it. We have a question and a super chat from Freedom Fiend. Does the technology exist now to build a Dyson Swarm? And if it does, do you know how much it would cost to build one? Oh, jeez. That's a hard one to answer because the answer is yes, it does. Uh, However, the the part that's expensive is what type of Dyson Swarm you want to build and where are you sourcing the material from. And as an example, if I want to do a 100-meter square meter satellite right now, that might run me a billion dollars just to get up in space, right? In which case, I would need some huge amount of money because that was like 10 to the 11th squared. It's going to be somewhere on 10 to 23rd square meters of surface area you need there. So if you cover 100, you're going to need a billion trillion times whatever that billion dollars was. It's a lot of money. On the other hand, a tube of aluminum foil costs, uh, God, that's probably about 10 square meters on one of those. Well, like three or four bucks. I don't know what's inflation done to. Probably five. Yeah, so. Uh, with inflation, about five dollars for ten square meters, or fifty cents a square meter, which is really cheap. You think about it. But if you want to do a billion trillion square meters of the stuff, that still means that you're going to need um, a billion trillion dollars, which no, is a five very, billion trillion dollars. A, a very large number, though. Um, so, you know, but the thing is, you don't build a Dyson swarm overnight. It's the same way you colonize. Like, say, we came across an empty continent. No, one day it's eventually going to have cities all over it, but you don't start there. You start there with a little seaport, and you slowly build up, right? Um, and when you're in space and you're mining all your material off something like the moon, it gets to be, you know, pretty cheap to produce aluminum foil at some point. But then if you want to do more than just simple power collection, you start building things like O'Neill cylinders, how much would that cost? Don't know. Could be really cheap if all you gotta do is design the thing and tell some robots to make a whole bunch more robots and then build it. You know, that's that's that tricky thing. We will talk about that more in the Starship Factories episode, which is next month's Sci Fi Sunday. Uh, I just got done recording that one actually, as well as the one right after that. I'm sorry, which is the Sci Fi Sunday episode, which is Forge Wards and Industrial Planets. So those will talk a little bit more about that change over the dynamic of what what really mean by cost and economics in that context. So we have another question here from Clash. With recent observations seeming to confirm the existence of phosphine on Venus, should Venus be considered a near-term target of human exploration and colonization along with the Moon and Mars? Well, I love that the little screenshot that was up there right there was the one for atmospheric mining. Um, I had not heard that phosphine had been confirmed on Venus. I thought it was kind of the other way around. They, they thought they hadn't found it, but I don't really keep too much off on that because I don't really think it was a biosignature which is the main interest there, um, for SETI anyway. Uh, you might you might mine that quite a lot if you want phosphorus for various space farms though. Should we be colonizing Venus? Should we be spending more attention on Venus? Um, what was the actual question again? 
That was the question. Okay, good. Um, yes, we should. It is a better target in many ways than, than Mars is. Uh, but is it a high priority to get out there and colonize it? Hmm. See our Winter on Venus episode. There are things you could do that make it much more habitable and faster. It's the easiest planet to terraform. Sonabella says, could the future of toys be an episode topic? Yes, I will actually write that down. Although, I should say that most of my future of some of the episodes tend actually not to do all that great. Like, we did a, when they were off main topics, like um, the future of sports or the future of pets. I love the future of pets episode, but it was not like one of the really popular episodes that people always remember. So I tend to get a little bit nervous doing the future of type episodes. Thought Criminal says, what is your opinion of quantum immortality? How likely do you think it is that it's true? Do you say quantum immortality? Correct. Quantum immortality. Well, I mean, the basic reasoning is, is valid enough. It just depends on the model's right. For, for those who don't know, loosely speaking, the idea is that if any position, any state can happen again in a, in a finite universe or very large infinite space of multiverses or very long periods of time and space, you know, an infinitely sized universe, that sort of thing, then these things should be happening again. So you should eventually pop back up again your exact state, right? This is kind of the Boltzmann brain idea, too. Um, and so it's not really a yes or no. The simple answer is if you got to be in a space, this will happen, right? The time scales and other scales involved are insanely huge. And it wouldn't just be you, you know, you have situations where you and your entire family, who are all identical, would pop back up again. But with the caveat is that for every time that happens, there should be an untold trillions and billions and gajillions of times where uh, not quite the right thing came out. And you could be somebody with a little bit different memories, or you, but you're missing your nose, your face, your lungs, any other things like that. Because you're talking about whether or not, like, if I shuffle a deck of cards, or if I take a whole bunch of scrabble tiles and dump them out there, what the odds of having a good book is. So dumping some scrabble tiles out and getting a ward, that's pretty neat. Dumping a bunch of scrabble tiles out and getting the entire novel is physically possible. Most of the time, it's not going to be a bestseller that came out, though. So. Just look at chat GPT. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wolf Unpacked, thank you for your super chat. Contrast notion of establishing colonies on other planets for relocating large populations to space or constructing a space station in Earth's orbit. Which of these options is more efficient? One more time. Uh, if you're contrasting the notion of establishing colonies on other planets for relocating large populations or constructing a space station in Earth's orbit, which one is more efficient? Kind of depends on what you're trying to make efficient in this case. Um, Moving large populations. Well, right. Is the goal to get rid of people you'd like to not have around? Because that is often been a reason for moving large amounts of populations is we don't want to kill you, but we'd like you to go away. Hello, Australia. You know, so... Um, and so that could be one of those things, or self-exile, right? A lot of people who came to the United States were coming from places where they did not want to be anymore and where they often weren't welcome. So the, the context on that has to always be what's the motivation for moving them. It is always, always going to be easier to build something in orbit of Earth until this place is so drowned in habitats or ecologies or everything else that the, you cannot build there because you have to get a permit for all the heat radiation your civilization is giving off. Until that time is reached, you will always be easier to build here. After that, then the question becomes, why did you want to build here? Why do you want to be away, but not quite away? 
So Kuiper Belt habitats become very attractive. Ones around other stars get very attractive. If the goal for your people going into exile is that you would like to have a gigantic habitat and then a billion others for you to build afterwards, then another star is definitely what you want to be looking at. And so I think that that's that being the question, yes, it's easier to build around Earth, but it is an inseparable question from what the motivation is for the people building the habitat or moving there. We may not always be the same people. Um, we have kind of a comment here from uh, someone that did not provide their name and did a super chat. I tried to email you about the Panscomoria theory, but I didn't know if you got it. And I could post it here in the comments if you prefer to reply in the stream. I'm afraid I didn't have time to read in the comments. You can paste it if you want. That sounds like a familiar email. It, when you email things to me, there's always a good chance that I've read it, but didn't have a chance to fully absorb it or reply. Usually if it was something, if I emailed you back, that means I had a chance to really delve it. But I do get books emailed to me every day, and I do not read the majority of them. Uh, I try to prioritize shorter messages. So uh, just email it again. If I gave it to come through, it sounds familiar. I will reread it and reply this time. Warden, thank you for your super chat. What do you think about the proposed Kardashev levels? Um, yeah, I think I didn't have a chance to watch it yet, but I'm pretty sure John Michael Cotier just did a, an episode on whether or not we should get rid of them. Um, I hate the Kardashev scale. <laughs> I know I've done whole episodes on it, and I finally, after years of having people say, what K4, what's a K4, what's a K5, I've decided that that should be a Gravielian civilization. That's got a whole supercluster. That's K4. Anybody who colonized the entire hub of volume, that's a, that's a K5. Um, I don't like the use of the Kardashev scale to talk about levels and scales of civilizations because, one, it doesn't stack evenly. You know, as an example, K1 is a planet. Well, what do you mean? What's, what's using all the energy of a planet? What about a planet that's the size of Mars or Super Earth? They have the entire order of magnitude different sunlight. Do you mean that you're using it? And if so, does that include agriculture, you know, or weather uh, versus running into your solar panel grid? Uh, same for stars. You know, what there are red dwarfs that are of like a thousandth the brightness of our sun and other stars that have a million times the brightness. That's a scale of age of nine orders of magnitude. K2 is that big. Not very useful when it's nine orders of magnitude. So I say, I have a new terminology for planets. We got ones that are this size, that's a planet. And one's the size of Earth, that's a planet, because that's the scale difference there. You know, a couple centimeters the size of a planet. And that would be your K2 scale, you know. Um, Galaxy is a little bit easier, but then people want it to be an even step, like the Sagan scale. It says 10 to 16 watts, 10 to 26 watts, and 10 to the 36 watts. And that's that's really fudging things to stuff it in there. Uh, we did do an episode looking at that and ways you can make that a little bit more useful, but it's not a good scale for trying to measure civilizations. And we have to remember, what did Kardashev have in mind with that? It was a SETI method, right? If you're trying to look at a, a planet and see if it's got an effective civilization on it, you're looking for something that could significantly alter the natural spectrum of that planet. Do you remember That's the K1. name of your episode on the Kardashev? The Kardashev scale. Yes. <laughs> There's a couple of ones, too. <laughs> There's been a few so on So just that. Google Kardashev scale, and you can have a full, yep. in-depth look at this topic. At that topic. And then K2 is what significantly alters a star spectrum. And that's the real question on these things. It's not what's a civilization look like when it's like that. It's how would we recognize if some civilization had significantly altered a planet, a star, or a galaxy. That's your real Kardashev scale. It's for astronomical SETI 
It doesn't talk about anything other than when you've you've done something to change that to become a loud alien or uh, moving on. <laughs> Rodney. Well, Zealand, I believe, has sent a super chat. What is the confidence of the standard candle with significantly different metallicity pro- profiles? Um, metallicity. I'm we just sorry. had metallicity. Yeah, we just had another problem. I can't remember the exact details, but it was it was issues with the Hubble expansion rate, where one of our predictions is is very firmly predicted about I want to say seventy two kilometers per second per megaparsec. And another one's putting it more like 67 again. And these are both increasingly accurately pinning down on this on a different number. They are becoming more and more certain that this number or this number is, is more accurate. Before it was kind of a wider spread, and, and but now we're nailing down two different things. That tends to imply one of our, our fundamental measurements there is off in some fashion we haven't picked up on yet. Um, how confident we are about any involving standard candles, though, at is held. Remember, earlier I was talking about uh, white dwarfs going supernova. And why we had those as a standard candle is you can see a supernova a billion galaxies away, as it were. Um, you can see ones that were 10 billion light years away. You know, that's great. You can see them. And if you believe they all have the same time when they go off, 1.44 solar masses, kaboom, and that all of it is blown up at once, then you know that's a very narrow range of energies. Uh, but that could be thrown off by things. What material is inside it? What was the actual composition based on its age? Uh, did it get a whole bunch at once or not? And then the question of, do they actually blow all the way up? Or do they leave a zombie star behind? We don't We don't know. Right? If there's a mulch of air on something like that, where we thought it was much tighter, but it turned out it wasn't, that can throw your numbers off a lot. And there's so little we truly know in terms of like really accurate modeling of, of the dynamics inside of stars based on their mass, their churn rate, what the composition of that star was when it joined, would it absorb anything from a binary partner. There's so many things in there that could throw them off that you just cannot say yet that those models are super accurate. They're good, though. They're all good. But at the same time, the confidence level, pretty confident. That's will with that one. That's exactly what that sounds like, too. Pretty confident. So we have another super chat here from Vincent Cleaver. Thank you. JavaScript measures time from 1970 in milliseconds. I expect that we would probably just use kiloseconds, megaseconds, and gigaseconds. Atomic bear hugs. Well, and, and you know, I, I've played with that one too. And it's why I say when you got to, uh, there's an episode we haven't done yet, but one day we'll do probably as an April Fool's joke called Why the Metric System Sucks. Uh, <laughs> and one of the points that would be in that episode is that a lot of things that people point to the metric system for and say they like aren't the metric system. They are base 10, which is decimal, whereas the uh, English SAE system is often uses base 12. And, you know, this is not our natural counting system any more than this is. We count knuckles, you count 12, if you do it that way. That's why there's so many fives and 60s systems. Um, but uh, one of the things the metric system isn't really that ideal for is that it doesn't really do temperature as comfortably as a lot of us would like to have it. And it doesn't really scale so well on things like time. Because if you want to do base 10 for everything, right? You can do that for distance, but then we still use light years. We don't really use, I don't know what it would be, like yada meters. Um, people use light year, and they should, or an AU, and you should. You should use a system of measurement that's relevant to the system you're in. I don't want to talk to people about what nano, tero nanojoules might be uh, in you know, the energy value of an electron. It doesn't work well for that. And it doesn't work well for time. Uh, you can do it. That's perfectly fine. You can do a gigasecond. You can do a giga year, for instance, too. But what is a kilosecond? 
about 20 minutes, right? Or 18 minutes. What is a megasecond? It's like 10 days. It's, it's closer to a week, right? Over a week, though. It's not a very useful number. It's not like it is 10 days, either. It's just in that zone. What's a gigasecond? About 30 years. So you could talk about in terms of generations, a gigasecond, a generation is like a gigasecond. You can use these scales, but do you really want to afford things in that kind of context because it's not really intuitive? And so I would say that using metric time in that kind of context from the kilosecond or something downward, that's not really going to produce a system that people really want to use. Now, does it match a computer? No. So if you've got a computer that's keeping track of it, but then why not just use a binary measurement time instead of a uh, decimal-based one, right? So again, some things don't scale well uh, by trying to just put prefixes on them. And I think that it's easier for sometimes just to have a different year that people know that's more native to whatever discussion is, like a light year or an astronomical unit, than it is to pack on another prefix because it's not like when I tell people, good God, a uh, uh, a pedometer or a uh, you know penetral that they just know what what kind of scale I'm talking about off the top of my head. You know that these are not terms that really go very well. All right, I'd like to give a shout out here to Not Five for their 100 crown super chat. Thank you for supporting the live stream and the program. And we have another question here from Michael Beacon with a super chat. What do you think of moving an O'Neill cylinder at faster than light speeds? Do you think coming out of faster than light would have a dark helmet from Spaceballs effect? Um, so, I haven't seen Spaceballs since the second millennium, so I'm trying to remember the character a little bit better there. He's the Darth Vader ripoff. Um, but uh, I'm trying to remember that actor's name, Rick, Rick something that played him. Uh, great movie. Haven't seen it in years, though, so I, I'm not positive on what the effect is. Um, other than they store plants' atmosphere with a vacuum cleaner, which was good. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Um, I so. do not tend to... I mean, if you're familiar with the show, there's not really going to be a scenario where I think the word O'Neill Cylinder travel at faster than light speed is a realistic statement. <laughs> so. Look up O'Neill Cylinders and Faster Than Light Travel for more information. <laughs> I'd be curious, since we wrote ChatGPT, what, what, what ChatGPT would have to say on that battle. So, that strikes me as one of those things that might drive it a little bit off the edge. So. <laughs> Simone Zada, would a project to build a Lofstrom loop connecting South America and Africa to bootstrap the building of an orbital ring to hang static stations from be doable before the turn of the century? I mean, technically speaking, it's good to do right now. It's just, um, you know, the idea there would be, you, you don't have to put a launch loop at the equator, but like every other launch assist vehicle, it looks a little bit easier that way. Um, I think you'd have a lot easier time trying to do a tethered ring inside either the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, because then it's actually going to run by all these really valuable ports, whereas there's not that much built up on the equator, especially in terms of countries that have the kind of... Uh, finance the economic clout to build something like that. When you get around to it, though, all you need is two good-sized nuclear reactors, one on each side, and and uh, ideally a, a very nice room-temperature superconductor would help a lot, too. But uh, sadly, that doesn't like that one's on the horizon immediately at the moment either, which I'm still a little disappointed about, but uh, was not surprised by. Um, but uh, although I would say the, the biggest upside, personally, from the LK99 incident was that our old episode, The Impact of Superconductors, Got a whole bunch of new views on it, so that was that was a positive anyway. But uh, yeah, you could build a launch loop that way. I am a big believer that a lot of these space launch techniques, like the orbital ring, like a tethered ring or a uh, a launch loop that's between two places like that, is that it has terrestrial 
uses. You cannot just use it to get into space, you can use it to get around this planet faster and cheaper. So you can take a train up to space and take it back down to some other place and arrive anywhere on the planet in a couple hours. That's cool. You know? <laughs> and cheaper than running on an airplane. You just gotta put the infrastructure in force, which of course, we always have way the actual cost there because we don't know what it'd be, but probably high. <laughs> Jonathan Rabinick says, who is your favorite scientist and greetings from Poland? I guess the question would have to be whether or not they're human and, and also greetings to Poland because I've been to Poland a few times. Uh, thank you. I think I mentioned earlier I was stationed over there in Germany for a while, so it was one of those places I enjoyed going to. There's a crystal market in Prague, I think, that's just beautiful. But anyway, the, the question, which I've completely forgotten, what was the question again? Who is your favorite scientist? If they have to be alive, uh, that's a little bit trickier. Um, I, it doesn't it prerequisite doesn't say, that. No. It, it just oh. says favorite in general. My, my two primary role models from the science angle would be Richard Feynman and Benjamin Franklin. And depending on which day of the week you ask me, that, that, that might change, uh, which those two are. Uh, but those are the two big ones because I, I really find them to be very interesting characters. And uh, also kind of inspirational. And they, they just, I don't know, they just seem to get it. They seem to have a willingness to do science the right way and look at it. Um, but uh, there's a lot of other ones alive these days. I'm just trying to think of any, because when I think of scientists these days, I'm thinking of buddies or people I know, and there's a lot of them. So, uh, and uh, I suppose, well, I'd say in terms of astronomers, Al Storm right now from the New Horizons project, we've been talking about doing, uh, trying to say that spacecraft. That would be one of the folks that I would say, you know, we don't always give as much credit to the teams on telescopes as we do the person who comes up with a big theory like Stephen Hawking, but um, him and Eric, Eric Smith, I think from uh, James Webb, uh, you know, the, the work that they and their teams do to just kind of progress the needle in terms of astronomical knowledge is huge. And it should, you know, it should be considered the kind of same zone that we think of for folks like Tycho Brahe or Kepler himself, you know, the original Kepler. And so, uh, you know, in terms of the modern times, I'd say a lot of those folks would be on my list of living scientists I'd like a lot. Roger Penrose would be another one. Speaking of collecting ongoing data, um, in your role as the National Space Society president, didn't you have a petition that you were advocating uh, for recently? Yeah, and uh, we'll, we'll mention again, because it's doing very good, actually. Um, the uh, petition for New Horizons spacecraft, right? We're trying to rescue that spacecraft, which brought that to mind. Um, the National Space Society started up a petition for that. Me and Hoyt, our executive vice president, you know, signed on to that to start things off. And a lot of other folks have jumped in on it, thankfully, too. And I think we just passed 2,500 signatures. And I would know that a very, very large portion of those come out of this channel. So everyone who has signed that, thank you. If you haven't, assuming you're willing to, please do. Uh, now, what we'll is this to, petition about? It is a petition to encourage NASA to find some additional funding to keep that spacecraft going because we spent a billion dollars to get out there. It's doing amazing work right now still. And because shutting it down prematurely or putting it into a tender mode for a little while you know, to save um, you know, a couple million bucks just seems like... A lack a, a of bad, ongoing a data collection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This just seems like a non-optimal non use of funds. Keep the spacecraft going. Keep letting us find out more about the Kuiper Belt. Um, see our Comet Mining episode. Flick over that because it's got the link in it right there. I don't think I have it pasted on this one yet. We'll also have it in this week's upcoming episode again, too. So, so about change.org, that petition, it's doing great. And I hope you all sign it. Parker Brown, thank you for your super chat. Greetings, Arthur family. Isaac, what do you think about the idea of a planet-sized organism along the lines of a giant cell? 
Uh, Plant-sized organism the size of a giant single cell. I think that would be a hard one to, like, something multicellular, like a gigantic algae planet would be a little bit easier to see. Best fictional portrayal of that, I would say, would be Peter Hamilton's uh, Morning Light Mountain, a very, very xenophobic alien's hive mind uh, from his um, Commonwealth saga. The novel was Pandora's Stall and Judas, Judas Unchained. Very good books, those. Um, but... Uh, I think it's a very plausible scenario, to be honest. You see that in Alpha Centauri, the uh, video game from Sid Mio around the turn of the century. I, I like the idea of some kind of intelligence being able to arise in a non-predator prey cycle, where, whatever reason, the entire planet has to be developed in intelligence to kind of a unified whole, possibly as a parasitic organism, but difference that make at that point. And kind of that's always struck me as a very plausible scenario for something in between a Boltzmann brain and the process that we would presume we have gone through. I'm going to try to fit three more questions into the minute we have left. I will left. try to fit answers into them. <laughs> uh, Bolaji, thank you for your super chat. Might it be possible to resurrect the ancient dead by means of something like reverse psychohistory if backtracing particles is too difficult? Uh, well, I can tell you right now, backtracing particles is absolutely too difficult, but... Uh, trying to reverse engineer the people, you could get the culture, right? Probably pretty well. I think we could figure out enough to be able to replicate a fake, you know, medieval village 1050 AD or something like that, even if we didn't know the names of anyone who lived there. Uh, I think we could do a very realistic one on that, but it would be a fake one. It's not going to be the person who actually lived there. That's not going to let us happen. That's going to be their individual memories. And, you know, as much as I love psychohistory as a concept, I don't think it's any more accurate trying to run it backwards than it is trying to run it forwards, and it just isn't. It is, it is a fictional concept. We have an episode on psychohistory that explores that more. Vince, the Storm Chaser, says, What are the applications of quantum teleportation other than just faster transportation? Um, it doesn't really even allow faster transportation. Oh, uh, so man. <laughs> Where's the still, optimist today? It's still running at the speed of light. <laughs> the... the uh, uh, for quantum teleportation, there's a lot of potential tiny little industrial uses. You know, play around things very accurately at that scale, uh, but it really has weapons. It's it's based for a great weapon. You could teleport a bomb into a shielded bunker. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So the last super chat for today is from Andrew Soto. Hello, Isaac. Does something being possible under known physics imply that it is technologically feasible, as in cases where physics permits something, but there is a principled technological limitation? Mm -hmm. um, when I use term possible under known physics, well, I'm usually saying impossible under known physics, uh, all I'm implying there is that if you really, really want to, you can make it work. And as a quick example of how you would do that, since I could theoretically emulate a human mind by having each neuron run on a computer, um, you could theoretically have an entire city full of people who are sitting there writing calculations and throwing little balls into hoops to say when some thought is occurred and where each city was a single neuron. And by that, you could have a hive mind composed of people working at their desks, uh, composed of a billion cities. I don't know how practical that would be. Uh, probably not very practical, but it's scientifically possible. And I think that a lot of times we hear me use that statement, that is kind of where I'm going with some of those. On the other hand, at the same time, I'll also say something is possible under known physics when it's not that we think that would be new and possible so much as it's we know it's physically possible, but we don't really see a pathway to it as opposed to simply being impractical. So I guess the term means about that. We have reason to believe it's scientifically possible, but we do not know its degree of practicality, or we do know its degree of practicality, that's horrible. <laughs> so. 
Does that have for questions for today? That's going to wrap us up. We're at 5 o'clock. I hope that their drinks and snacks carried them through. And until next month, have a great week. We'll see you on Thursday. Thank you for joining us for another monthly live stream. If we missed any of your questions, feel free to put them in the comments on the episode, and we'll see you on Thursday, but if you don't want to wait, you can check out any of this month's recent episodes, or see our bonus content over on Nebula at go.nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.